about some of you, but I started working when I was pretty young. I was, in fact, 12 years old when I had my first job. Now, you can say that's child labor if you want to, but I thought of it as a job, and I had money coming in, I didn't care. <laughs> you know, some of you threw papers as a kid. Some of you, maybe you, uh, maybe you had a, a, a lawnmower and you went around mowing lawns. I had a brother who opened a pizza place, and maybe you might even remember this pizza place. It was over in Tuttle called Tom's Pizza right there on Main Street, many years ago now, because I was 12, so it had to be a while back. <clears throat> but my job was to be the bus boy. And yeah, okay, I was making 50 cents an hour, but listen, and when you're 12 years old and you got a job, you can be the only one in your classroom that gets a telephone in his own room. I mean, that's nothing these days. I mean, everybody in the world's got their own phone. It's just, it's, everybody's got one. But not when I was 12 years old, I was the only kid in my class had his own phone number. When I was 12 years old, I had, my own, um, I had my own television in my own room. That was, I mean, that was like this big, black and white. But it was mine. I bought it at the Otasco with the money I earned cleaning tables. Well, I started off as a busboy, but then my main job became the prep work because you had to do an awful lot of prep work because it was a pizza place. And what we would do is we'd make up our dough the day before, usually sometimes even two days before because you knew the big days were coming, Fridays and Saturdays and Sundays. And so I remember how we, we made everything. I still have those uh, recipes in my head because it was my job to make the sauce. You didn't just go over to Schwartz and buy the sauce. Oh, no, no. You bought the ingredients. You put it all together there at the, at the, at the restaurant. Same thing with the dough. You had to go get the ingredients and put it together. And I remember at this great, it was, when I was 12 years old, I was about the same size I am now. So it was still a pretty good sized piece of equipment. It was a great big urn on the floor that you would have a mixer arm to go in. It's going to make the dough. And what you do is you start off with the oil. You put about a half a cup, really about eight ounces of oil, and kind of coat the outside edges so it's going to help it in two or three different ways. You put that in there. You put in a half a can of warm water. Not hot, not cold, but warm. Okay, that goes in there, and you see some of the oil floating on the top of that. And then onto that, you're going to put a little bit of salt because you want it to mix through all the water, to give it a second to mix. Okay, and then you're going to put in two big coffee cans full of flour. You put all that in there, and you turn on the mixer, but then you have to put in the most important point, most important part. You're going to make pizza dough, pizza dough, it's going to have to have some yeast. And so I'd go and I'd get a nice big full cup of yeast, and you had to make sure it was measured just right or else you'd make a mistake. But you put that in there as it's starting to, to, to churn around and churn around and churn around in a little while, about 11 minutes actually, that the, all of that stuff would gather together and it would put itself together just right and there'd be 22 pounds of pizza dough at the bottom of that urn. I'd pull that up out of there and I, there's a big white tub, that, kind of a bucket thing we'd put it in. I'd put it in that, put a white towel over it and put it in the icebox and walk away. In fact, we usually did that about 9 o'clock at night because we needed that dough for tomorrow. And now when you come in in the morning, you'd find out whether or not you did your recipe correct. Because if you did it correctly, that little chunk of, tw little, that big chunk of 22, ounce, 22 pounds of dough at the bottom of that white thing, you know what it's done? It has grown. It has what we call risen. And I mean it had risen indeed. Because it would be usually about halfway up the thing. Now it's over the top and bubbling out. And so it was my job to get in there and pound it down and pound it down, and I would bunch it back down in there, and a lot of times we'd leave it in there again till the next day because it just depended on how much it, it rose. But that was my responsibility, and I found out through doing that that anything, anything in this world that you put yeast in, it's going to have a, a reaction. You put that, it's, there's a chemical reaction that releases a lot of the carbon dioxide in that 
uh, and then the yeast. It just, it's, it's interesting. It makes it from regular dough into yeast dough or into pizza dough. And, and you know if they did it right because you can taste the salt. It's just, oh, I remember those days because I knew that I made that. Yeah, big deal. Anybody could do it. They followed the recipe, but that was what I would do. And I found out as I continued to, to grow in the Lord and as I got saved that yeast all through the Bible is actually a symbol of evil. Yeast, and actually it's in the Scriptures it's not called yeast, it's called leaven. And the leaven in the Bible is always a symbol of evil. Anytime you see that, it's a symbol of putrefaction. It's a symbol of contamination. It's a symbol of something that the Lord wants out of your life. Let's put it like that. And so as we look at the Scripture today, I want you to be thinking about it, that, it, that yeast that I put into that mixture was just a little bit, but you know what? By the time it was done, it had mixed its way through that entire 22 pounds of dough. And you allow a little bit of yeast, a little bit of the leaven of this world, the leaven, just like this mixture I put in the, the water down here, it's going to shoot its way through your entire life, whether you mean for it to or not. Now, as we look at the text today, I want you to open your Bibles with me, if you would, to Mark chapter number 8. We're going to pick up right where we left off. Mark chapter 8 and verse number 14. Jesus and the disciples have just gotten back in the boat to leave behind. You remember those people in Dalmanutha basically ran him off. They didn't want to talk to him. They wanted a sign. They wanted this, that, and the other thing. They had something big in mind, and he didn't, uh, he didn't want to play their game. So he got back into the boat, and they were going to the other side again. So here, maybe they had planned to come ashore and have breakfast. Maybe they had planned to come ashore and do some traveling. Whatever else happened, they had to get back in the boat. And in verse 14, this is Mark chapter 8, verse number 14 and following, it goes like this. And they had forgotten to take bread and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. And he was giving orders to them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began to discuss with one another the, the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? And they said to him, Twelve. When I broke the seven for the four thousand, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, Seven. And he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? These men had been with him a long time. And they had seen some amazing things. And, and as, I, as I read through this scripture this week and began to prepare for the message, there were at least four different messages, maybe five, that just jumped out at me. And because the scripture can, 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 can teach a lot of different things from the same uh, text, I got to thinking about it, James. I didn't know if I wanted to preach about the fact that Jesus is always able to supply all your needs, wherever you are, whatever you need. Jesus is always able. He's always ready. If He can supply 5,000 men and their families with food, 4,000 men and families with their food, He can take care of my little need. That's, that's a great message from this section of Scripture. There's another good message in there, and that is when, when, when trouble comes, and by the way, trouble does come, doesn't it, Clyde? When adversity arises, and adversity does arise, doesn't it, Debbie? When bad things happen to good, so-called good people, you can trust that God is going to be there. So what do you do in that bad time? What do you do in that time of adversity? Well, this scripture teaches you, you go back and you review God's victories from the past. Remember how God was faithful in the past? When the 5,000 needed feeding and God took care of them, when the 4,000 needed feeding, so you can see from this scripture, also you can review God's past faithfulness. 
But let me give you a third one. This one's pretty fun, actually, because when you look at it, in verse number uh, 16, they began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. They were reasoning among themselves, is what it says in another translation. They were reasoning among themselves, and really it was more like, I wonder if he's mad at us because we don't have any bread, because he's talking about yeast, and we don't have any bread. Maybe he found out, and he's mad at Bartholomew, because it was Bartholomew's job to bring it. I don't know why I pointed at you, Clint, but... (laughs) The fact is... They were reasoning among themselves. And so another really good illustration here would be if you start with just good people reasoning among themselves, there's every good chance that all, even those good people are going to come to the wrong conclusion. You need to ask God for wisdom. You need to go to the Lord and ask Him for direction. You need to find out what God wants to do with your life and with your ministry or your direction in life before you start reasoning among yourselves because we're more than likely going to come to the wrong conclusion. I could preach any one of those messages, but the one I want us to focus in on is there in verse 15, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And really that's not talking about Herod the king, it's talking about the philosophy or the, the Herodians that were there following after Herod. And, and, and the point being that leaven, that small, seemingly insignificant, I mean maybe it's even unintentional, that addition that comes into our lives, into our faith, into our practice, as we just travel through life, as we don't re- sometimes even realize we're allowing it to happen, we need to watch out for that. We need to learn to recognize it, and we need to learn to keep it out if we can. But once we do recognize it, if it's in our lives, let's get it out. And how to do that. So, first question I would have, if that's the case, is how do I recognize leaven? I mean, is it, in, is it everywhere? Is it all around us? Is the world full of it? Well, the fact is, yes, the world is full of the lies, the full of the leaven. And so let me give you just three or four. I could give you 50. But let me give you just three or four here of what we can see and how we can recognize leaven. And the first leaven that I want us to talk about is really a leaven of philosophy. This world is full of philosophies today. And people can argue and they can sound so persuasive and so convincing. But this is a philosophical kind of of an argument. And it's a leaven that they want to drop in your heart. And oftentimes the first day of school, you go to college, they'll start talking to you about this. And that lie is this, that you don't need to be saved. That you don't need the Bible. You don't need God. You don't need the Lord. You don't need any of that stuff that you grew up with. No, there's no need. See, there's a strange gospel in our world today. It's the gospel that says, hey, I'm okay and you're okay. I don't know about you, but I'm a mess. At least I was before I got saved. But yet there's a gospel, and I like to call it sometimes the gospel according to Hollywood, that we don't know if there really is a heaven, but if there is, everybody's going. Because after all, aren't all people just basically good down at the bottom? Don't, down at the bottom of their core of their character, aren't they really pretty good? I mean, only really, 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 really evil people would really go to hell. Isn't that I mean, like Hitler or Judas? If there's a heaven, though, everybody gets to go. That's what pop culture says. That's what modern thinking says. That's what modern philosophy and reasoning says. If there's a heaven, everybody goes. Well, I'm here to tell you that's not the truth. According to God's Word, not all dogs go to heaven. Okay? According to God's Word, in fact, Jesus taught more about hell than He did about heaven. If you read through the words of Jesus, He warned and talked about hell more than He did heaven. Why? Because He didn't want you to go there. Because He wanted you to be aware that there was a punishment for those who would not follow God. And the Scripture is very clear. God has a standard. God has a a standard by which we all need to measure up. And the fact is, we don't. You know that from from Romans 3.23 where it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've, We've fallen short of that standard. And because we've fallen short of that standard, we stand condemned. You know, most of us know John 3.16. It's kind of the, 
You see it at football games even. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And a lot of us can even quote 317, where it says, For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. But have you ever read John 318? Let me just read to you. In fact, Zerbeth, throw it up there. John 3.18. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. In the King James, that reads, He who believes in Him is not condemned. But he who does not believe in Him is condemned already. Friend, if we don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we stand condemned already because of our sin, because of what we just read in Romans 3.23, that standard of God. When Jesus spoke to the crowds in His day, He talked about two different groups. Not six or seven or nine or eleven. He talked, about the, he talked about the sheep and the goats. He talked about the sons of the kingdom and the sons of Belial. He talked about the light and he talked about the darkness. And there wasn't a mixture of the two. You were an either or an or. When Jesus spoke to the crowds, he was talking to those who were going to be saved and those who were going to be lost. Those who were the twice born and those who were the once born. And that needs to be a truth that people remember today. You know, many of us probably remember the, the story of the Titanic, that fateful ship. In, 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 in 1912, when it left England, bound for New York Harbor, and it went chugging across the North Atlantic, oblivious to the dangers. And you know what happened it, as it was going along that one night. It struck the iceberg, and as that iceberg tore a hole down the entire, almost the entire length of the ship, and the water began to flow in, in that moment... Every passenger on that ship had one of two possible fates. They were either going to be saved or they were going to be lost. There wasn't anybody in the middle saying, well, I just decided I'll get off. No, you, you're either saved or lost. And friend, if you don't mind me saying so, and I hope you understand what I mean, we live in a fallen world. This world has already struck the iceberg of sin, and that iceberg of sin has doomed us all. And now everybody you see is either going to be saved or going to be lost. And unless we allow Jesus to save us, we will go down that wide road that leads to destruction because it is a leaven that is out there today that tells us, hey, everybody's okay, you don't need to be saved, there's no reason to worry about that. And many of our friends and neighbors have believed that leaven. Maybe even some of us in this room have thought, hey, it's okay, I'm all right, I don't need to be saved. I mean, after all, I don't need that church stuff. I'm a good person. You can be a very good person and still be separated from God forever in a place of torment and judgment called hell because hell is a real place. Don't let the leaven of this world try to tell you that you don't need to be saved. But there's another leaven that's out there, and that is kind of on the other side for people who've grown up in church, and that is that there's no way I can be saved. They've gone to church so long, they're, they're kind of, it's like they've been sprinkled with religion so much, and I'm not talking about real genuine faith. I'm not talking about real genuine Word of God. I mean, they've been sprinkled with religion, and now they've come to the place in their life where, hey, I can't be saved. It's too late for me. I've been so bad, I could never be good enough for God. People who grew up in the church, they walked away maybe from the, the faith of their childhood, and now they look back on it and they think, wow, how bad I've been, the things that I've done. How could I possibly ever go to God and have Him forgive me? And I've actually had people look at me in the face and say, Preacher, if you knew what I'd done, you wouldn't be talking to me because you know if I went in that church, the roof would fall in. To which I want to say, you ought to meet some of the church members that are there now. You, do, you ain't done nothing. Let me just tell you about them. Well, I won't tell them, but you know what I mean. 
But there are people out there, they, they, they really believe that they cannot be saved. Friend, that is leaven. When they try to believe there's no way, it's a lie because they've been sprinkled with just enough religion that they believe that God hates them. And so they hate themselves. I've blown it so bad, I'm beyond hope. In fact, I, I didn't get to witness to this lady, but I was talking to some soul winners that came in one afternoon. They'd just been out to someone's house. And they sat down with this lady, and she was, she was one of those... I mean, they got to give the entire presentation. She didn't just meet them at the door. She invited them in. They got to give the entire presentation. They started with all have sinned. They went on to the, the, the entire Roman road and got to the whosoever part. And, and I mean, she was her eyes were, were wet with tears. She was ready. They thought she's going to get saved here any minute because she's ready to repent. And so they asked her the question now. Now, would you like to, to repent of your sin and believing in Jesus? Come to God through the blood of the Lamb. And, and she says, oh, I'd love to. I want to get saved so bad, but I can't. Well, that flummox is a Baptist preacher and a Baptist deacon. What do you mean you can't? What's standing between you and salvation if you're ready to repent? And she said, oh, I can't. I sinned a sin God can't forgive. And they said, well, what did you do? Weird question to ask, by the way. But they asked her, what did you do? She said, I cut my hair. She'd been raised in a religion that told her, if you cut your hair, you can't be saved. You've, you've committed a sin. You've committed an unpardonable sin. And she believed that she hated herself for it, and she believed God hated her, and she couldn't be saved. Now, they did continue to try to work with her, and eventually, from what I know, she, she eventually was saved, but I'm not, I, I, I only say that because I heard it anecdotally. I didn't talk to her. But there's no one who's done anything so bad that it cannot be forgiven. There's no one so bad that they cannot be saved. In fact, I want to show you something. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul is speaking to the people there in Corinth, and he's talking to some of these people who believe they're so bad, who believe that they could never be saved. In 1 Corinthians chapter number 6, it begins in verse number 9. Let me start there. Paul is talking to these, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Well, okay, Paul, what do you mean by unrighteous? Well, here he's going to give us a list. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators. Now, that's the people who decide that they want to be unfaithful sexually before they're married. That's fornication. Nor idolaters nor adulterers, that are pe that's people who are unfaithful in marriage after they get married, or unfaithful in sexually after they're married, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And he says, the unrighteous, and he gives a good list. Now, can you imagine? How many of the people in Corinth would have fallen into that list? Matter of fact, just ask yourself, how many of us might fall into that list? Revilers, idolaters. How many of us have put something between us and God? How many of us have been unfaithful to our neighbors? Or how many of us have done one of these? If nothing else, how about covetous? You ever look at your neighbor's bass boat and wish it was yours? I mean, it catches all of us. And if that's where the Scripture stopped, we'd all be blown up. We'd all be saying, well, we can't get there. We're just done. And so Paul gives that list, and then look at verse 11 with me. And such were... Some of you. In other words, yeah, you, some of you used to do this. Maybe all of you. Maybe some of you were all of these things. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Thieves, now justified. Idolaters, now forgiven. Swindlers, now washed. Drunkards, now sanctified. Don't ever let anybody tell you you can't be saved or that somebody is so bad that God could never save them. Some of you have heard of Chuck Colson. 
he was, uh, it's kind of a, a long time ago now, but he was involved in the whole Watergate issue. He was, in fact, they called him the, the White House hatchet man. You remember this, Clyde? Hatchet man of the White House. He was Nixon's bulldog. He was a guy that if you wanted somebody gotten out of the way, you talked to Chuck Colson. He was that for Richard Nixon. And he was vicious. I mean, he got in, uh, kind of mixed up in the whole Watergate thing, and they, they found him, and they got him. They, he was guilty. They sent him to prison. And while he was in prison, somebody gave him a little volume called Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And he read through it and read through it and read through it. And after several months in that prison, with just mere Christianity and a Bible, the Lord got a hold of his heart and he got saved. And after his, he changed his life, I mean, totally turned him around. And the White House hatchet man, after he got out of prison, you know what he did? He went back to prison to minister to the other prisoners. Opened a thing called Prison Fellowship. And to this day, ministers to the children of, of uh, prisoners. So don't you tell me that there are people who are so bad that they cannot be saved. But now let me give you another, another form of leaven that's out there, and this is so prevalent. It says, in Mark 8 again, it said the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Well, what is the leaven of Herod? Well, that would be a... Let me, let me try to give you an idea of what that might be. Because it's all over here, and that would be the, the people that believe the lie of, hey, I'm going to come to church, or I'll get saved, but what's in it for me? I mean, what am I going to get in this life? What am I going to get this week? Am I going to enjoy this? Is this something that's going to give me some kind of benefit? So they asked that question, is there a benefit in this for me? Now, in the, in the day in which Jesus was talking and, and the people that were here against him, there were basically four groups that were in the Jewish religion at that time. There were the scribes and the Pharisees, which kind of formed one voting block in the Sanhedrin. And then there were the Sadducees and the Herodians, which are the other voting blocks. So really, the Herodians and the Sadducees were on one team, and the, uh, the Pharisees and the scribes were on the other team, kind of a WWE tag team going on, okay? And so when they got fighting with each other, it was always those two groups. Well, here were the Pharisees and the scribes. Well, that was the ones who were teaching false doctrine or they were leading through works. And here are the Sadducees and the Herodians. They were there for the political power that they could gain. They joined that Sanhedrin. They went into that for what they could get. They went in for religion in order to get something out of it. Now, there were genuine God-seekers in the, in the Sanhedrin. I mean, we know Nicodemus was one from the Sanhedrin. Saul of Tarsus later on became Paul the Apostle. They were genuinely seeking God. But many people in that day... They were looking at religion as a shortcut to political power. They were looking at religion of somehow I'll get a bunch of people on my side. If I say the right religious things, I'll have the right religious group on my side and become a, a religious ruling class. We see it through all the history of the day. We see it through all the scripture there as they were doing that. Even using bribes and threats to gain polit political power and position. And some today, even today, go into ministry with that in mind. It's a professional thing. I love the idea of being in the ministry because I'll get to play golf three days a week. Now, anybody who believes that has never really been in ministry, okay? But the fact is, a lot of people go into it thinking, I'm just going to putter around the house. I get to, you know, get up a sermon on Friday afternoon. You know, it's no big deal. I can take care of that. And so a lot of people think that they can go into it, go into the ministry looking for the corner office. Go into the ministry working for the position of power. Get into a church seeking a title and authority. And, and I don't want to give you the idea that we're not supposed to, to be leaders, God calls us to be leaders. God calls men to the leadership in their family and in the neighborhood and in the, the, the nation, in their job. God calls ladies to be leaders in their homes and in their neighborhood and in the jobs that God gives them. But the, the leadership that God calls us to is a servant leadership. 
In fact, if you remember in Matthew 23, Jesus said that the, the greatest among you will be the servant of all. Matthew, let me get that. Matthew 23 goes like this. Matthew 23, verse 10 says, Do not be called leaders or masters, for one is your master, that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. Whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Jesus said that, and Jesus himself became the ultimate example of that when he laid down his life in suffering and blood to be your substitute on that cross. And Jesus in Mark 10, 45 said it this way, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. But this leaven of Herod, I mean, it's still alive and growing in homes and churches and businesses across America. I mean, you people go off to college. I don't know if you're going to go to a secular university or a Christian university or wherever, but you know that you go into a college and it's, you need to join the right sorority. Because then you have all the connections. And yeah, you may have to compromise some things and do some things you think aren't right, but if you get into that sorority, man, your ticket's punched. Or if you get into this particular fraternity, you get into that with that group of guys, they'll, they'll be your buddy for the rest of your life. They'll get you in all these different places and all these different places of authority. And so what we do is we join up in order to be seen joining up. People do that with church. Not so much these days, but back when I was a kid, that was kind of normal. If you were a big wheel in a town, you joined the first biggest church. didn't have to be a Baptist church, it just had to be the biggest, because that was going to give you the most business connections. Joining any group just to gain friends. Joining any group just to be popular. Joining any group just to gain power is leaven, and it will corrupt the rest of your life. Let me give you another kind of leaven that's here, and that is once people come to Christ, and there's more leaven. It's not going to stop just because you get saved. Let's say you did. You came to the Lord in repentance and faith, accepting His gift of salvation. And then here comes some more leaven. Now that you're there, you're good. There's nothing more. Friend, that's leaven. That's a lie. But many today have bought into that idea that, hey, once I'm saved, I'm just a bench warmer. I can just kind of hang out. I got the mentality of, hey, I've got my ticket to heaven. What else is there? It's somebody else's job now. Listen, if God didn't take you directly to heaven as soon as you got saved and put you in heaven, that must mean that over here where you were, He still has something for you to do. He must have a job, a responsibility, something He'd like for you to fulfill in this life, in this side of heaven. He's got more for us to do here. Most of us today could probably quote Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. That's the place where it says, For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. But how many can quote verse 10, where it goes on to say, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has foreordained or pre-planned or prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. God has good works for you, ahead of you. Now we don't work to get saved, but Jesus said it this way. He said, herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. You want to bring glory to God. There's more to do. In fact, I know that, don't, get, don't, don't, don't hear me saying that we can work our way to heaven or somehow work our way to God's pleasure. God's pleased with us when we accept Christ. Because I can't work my way to heaven. I like that old poem that says, I cannot work my soul to save. That work my Lord has done, but I will work like any slave for the love of God's dear Son. You see, these works that we do to glorify the Father, those are love works. Those are what I do because I love Him. Not to get Him to love me, but because I already love Him, because He already loves me. I love Him because He first loved me. So that's a love work. Well, what's the very first love work that we're supposed to do? What's the very first 
step of obedience that He calls us to do when we accept Christ, when we start to follow the Lord. It's baptism. When Peter preached that great message there in chapter 2 of Acts, on the day of Pentecost, he finishes his sermon, and he's, they're cut to the quick. In chapter 2 of the, of the book of Acts, it says in verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He said that's the first thing. But so many people in our world today have let laziness or lethargy or even worse, lack of love, rob us and other people of the great blessing of that first testimony that we give of being saved. And some of us right here in this room need to be baptized. What does it mean if I say, yeah, I got saved, I walked the aisle, I got saved, but I don't, I don't want to get in front of all those people. I mean, after all, that's just kind of, kind of embarrassing, isn't it? Get up there and get wet in front of all those people. That sounds exactly like the day when Billy finally popped the question and asked Susie to marry him. And they went down to the church about a year later after all the plans are made. You ladies know what I mean. And he says, I do, and she says, I do, and she's in her beautiful dress, he's in his slick black suit, and they come walking out of that church just as excited as they can be, and they get in there, and he takes her to the car, he puts her in her car, he walks over and gets in his car and drives away. She chases him down. What is going on? Didn't we just say, I do and I do? And he says, yes, I wanted to marry you. And yes, I'll see you next week at church, but I don't want to be seen with you during the week. I got a life the way I want it. I don't want you involved. I want you on Sundays down there where I can control you. I'll see you next Sunday. Is that going to be a marriage? You can flip that around and make Susie and Billy be on the other end of those two. But that's the way it's, that's exactly what we're saying to God is, Lord, I want you on Sunday. I want you to bless me. I want you to save me. I'll see you in heaven. But I won't bother you down at church very much. That sounds like false faith to me. Now, I could give you 20 more, maybe 50 more. I mean, in 11 of this world, there is no heaven. That's what they'll tell you. That's leaven. That's a lie. There is no hell. That's leaven. That's a lie. There's no creator. That's leaven. That's a lie. But let me give you the lie, the leaven that I believe has probably sent more people to hell than any other individual little sprinkling of leaven into this world today. That's not that there's no heaven, no hell, no God, no sin. The leaven that is probably going to send more people to hell out of Baptist churches is this one. There is no hurry. That I've got all the time in the world. I mean, after all, life goes on. All remains as it has been since the beginning when the fathers fell asleep. That's what they said we'd be saying in the last days, and it's, it's happening. People hear the gospel, and a preacher pours out his heart and says, you need to come to Christ, and you know what? I'm too young. Or even not I'm too young, it's I'm too busy. Well, it's not I'm too busy, I'm too, I'm too comfortable. Because after all, I've got my life exactly the way I want it. Don't tell me I need to stop doing this, preacher. I'm enjoying that. Don't tell me I need to start doing this, preacher. I'm enjoying my life the way it is. And, and, and by the way, there's always tomorrow. Because that's what the devil's whispering in some of your ears right now. There's no hurry. There's always tomorrow. You can do this another time. Scripture says that we need to seek the Lord while He may be found. And the very fact that the Scripture says, Seek ye the Lord while He may be found, is proof 
that there are going to come times when He cannot be found. Now, I know the book of Proverbs says it two different places. If you will seek Him, He will let you find Him. But there is also a time. Paul said in the, in the second book of Corinthians, in uh, see, 2 Corinthians 6.2, he says, Today is the day of salvation. There it is. At the acceptable time, I listened to you. And on the day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. I knew a man. It was my privilege to lead him to the Lord about 16 years ago. He had been a salesman for floors from shoes. Great salesman. I mean, he was a money-making machine. Traveled the country. Had two little girls and a wife at home. He was gone a lot. And he made all kinds of promises. Oh, sweetie, I'll be home. We'll do this. Oh, baby, go, you know, talking to the little girls. Just wait. Daddy will make some more money, and then we'll go do this. And Daddy will finish his job, and I'll go do this. And he made lots and lots of promises and lots and lots of plans. But one day, he was at home, and there was a knock at the door. And it was the police officer saying, Sir, are you such and such? And he said, Yeah. And they said, Well... Your wife and your two daughters are down at the morgue. They were killed by a drunk driver, and we need you to come down and identify the bodies. And in that moment, all his plans, all of his promises were snuffed out. From that moment, everything he had planned was gone. God hasn't promised you tomorrow. For 40 years, that man grieved those days that he didn't spend with those little girls. For 40 years, he grieved the days he didn't go shopping with his wife. God hasn't promised you tomorrow. Don't believe that lie because there is another lie that says, I'll just put it off. It, I'm not really saying no to God. I'll just do it another day. Because after all, refusal is not a denial. Actually, it is. Because I told you before, there's only two kinds. There's the saved and there's the lost. Don't believe that leaven that says, hey, I can get saved some other time. That's leaven. It'll derail your life. So in conclusion, I want to ask the question, have you been caught in any of these leaven traps? Have you heard that coming out of your own mouth or the mouth of your grown children or maybe your neighbor? Maybe you look at your own heart and you say, hey, there's a growing pocket of leaven right here in my own heart. Maybe you've been sprinkled with the philosophy that says, I don't need to be saved. Maybe you've been sprinkled with the philosophy that, hey, I, I, don't, I don't have any reason to think I can get saved. I'm too bad. Maybe you've been sprinkled with that religious philosophy that says, there's, there's always going to be tomorrow. There's always going to be another day. Or maybe you've just been lazy and said, I'll, I'll get baptized someday. It's not that big of a deal. Listen, that leaven can be washed out today by the washing of the water of the Word. Because listen, that leaven's all around us. It's a part of our world. It's a part of our life. And sometimes without even realizing it, we've allowed some of that in. We've put maybe just a little pinch. But remember what happens with leaven. It only takes a little pinch before the entire thing is contaminated. Modern Pharisee, the modern Herodian, and even some right here in our churches, creeping into a corner of our lives, we might need help identifying that leaven. That's why God gives us parents. That's why God gives us teachers. That's why God gives us Sunday school directors and, 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 and pastors, friends. We might need help getting rid of that leaven because the first step is repentance. Can you repent of an idea? You can repent of believing a lie. And if you've believed a lie, you need to change that. You need to come 
to the Lord all over again. That's one of the reasons why we read and study the Word of God, so we can identify and get rid of that leaven, because the Bible says He'll clean it out by the washing of the water of His Word. And then, then we can become a pure and holy lump of dough as we need to be. So this morning, I'm going to invite you to look in your own heart. Not your neighbor, not your kid, not your dad, not your mom. In your own heart. Have I accepted the leaven of this world and colored the purity of my heart to match that leaven? Or did I see it as leaven and say, no, I'm not putting up with that. That's out of my heart. That's out of my life. If you today can look at your heart and where it's supposed to be pure, it looks like this. You can still have this by the washing of the water of the Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.